up on today's show, the new cabinet sworn in today. We'll speak with Dr. Lisi Young about who's in, who's out. Plus, we all say we don't like our jobs. We all say we don't like our bosses, but the data doesn't show that to be true. And defense spending in this country is a time to rethink how we handle national defense and be a little more on the ball. Right now, we're going to chat with uh, Dr. Lisa Young, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Young, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time, as always. My pleasure. So we get the new cabinet sworn in in about an hour and a half, a couple hours away here. Um, lots of change, lots of new portfolios, lots of old ones that have sort of disappeared quietly. But I, I guess there is a thread of continuity, too, especially when you take a look at the senior portfolios. Let's start there. I'm thinking of uh, people like uh, Jason Copping and, and Tyler Shandro and Adriana LaGrange, some of the bigger portfolios. People are staying in place that we're familiar with, right? Absolutely. When we look at all of the, as you call them, senior or central portfolios, the things that provincial governments really are focused on, uh, K-12 education, healthcare, advanced education, those are the big ticket items. And uh, finance, obviously, is central. And there we see absolutely no change from the Kenny cabinet. Um, let's go through a couple of the interesting ones and, and the challenges they may face. Um, copping. Certainly going to be in the spotlight, you would have to think, with all the talk surrounding AHS and healthcare in the province. Where does copying fit into that sort of what looks like is going to be a pretty nasty dispute going forward? Yeah, I think this is absolutely fascinating. You know, Copping came into health after there was a cabinet revolt uh, under the, the Kenny government. Shandro was moved out, Copping was moved in, and he really sort of settled the the portfolio in many ways. He proceeded with uh, significant uh, pandemic restrictions. Um, you know, he, he managed to sort of hold the system together through a period of crisis. Um, and so he, it's interesting to keep him in place. Um, I would imagine that after this time, he's got some level of comfort with the leadership of Alberta Health and the leadership of Alberta Health Services, so that he's willing to stay in place and presumably act on the Premier's demands that there be significant changes in leadership, both in the ministry and in Alberta Health Services, is interesting. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's trying to moderate uh, some of her directives or whether he is simply, you know, acting on orders. Uh, you know, so I think that in some ways is the most important sort of continuity. If anyone's going to be able to moderate the, the premier on the healthcare file, I, I think copying is probably best placed for it. The other file that I think is going to be fascinating to watch is Tyler Shandro, who finds himself in a really interesting position here. I mean, he's the guy who introduced the restrictions and the mandates. Now he's the guy that has to try and amend the Human Rights Code and put in some kind of framework so we never have restrictions or mandates again. He's, he's working against himself, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a couple of things to say about this. I think the, the first thing is... The Premier has taken the view that um, everything bad that happened during the pandemic, in her view, right, as an opponent of restrictions and vaccination mandates and so on, is to be laid at the feet of Alberta Health Services and the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And in our 
democratic system, in our parliamentary system, we have the principle of ministerial responsibility. So it doesn't matter who took the action, the minister is considered responsible. But both Shandro and Copping remain in her cabinet, and now Shandro is presumably, as you say, going to have to enact um, some legislation, steer it through the legislature, basically reversing decisions that he made or or criticizing them. And I have to say, I wonder why he agreed to do this. If you take a look at it, I think there's a lot of those questions, you know, and just in speaking people with people from the party over the past couple of days in terms of where people, I mean, Jason Nixon is gone, uh, but these ones were kept close. So I, I think that's part of it. Do you, we, we don't know. We don't know what kind of discussions were had, what conversations were had. Um, and I guess we just have to wait and see how this plays out. Like you say, are they in there to try and moderate? Are they in there to, to take orders? I mean, we don't know what the relationship is at this point, but they're certainly seen as Kenny loyalists, the, the enemy during the campaign. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that all of them have far more experience with governing now than the Premier does. She has never been in Cabinet. She's never had a Cabinet portfolio. Here she is now as as Premier. She's being pulled in one direction by the, the people who got her elected as uh, to, to the leadership, but presumably is then going to be pulled in another direction by these very experienced ministers who probably want to moderate her um, with the 2023 election in mind. We were promised more rural representation, and we got that, right? I mean, we did see that come to fruition. Absolutely. Um, Considerably more rural uh, representation, not really at the expense of Calgary representation or urban representation in the way that we thought it might be, because the other thing about this cabinet is that it's really quite large. Well, I mean, let's talk about that for a second, because we've seen I heard, you know, if you count junior ministers, we're we're pushing almost 40 different ministries, right? I mean, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. And there's a lot of, there's a lack of clarity in sort of where some of the portfolios end and others begin. You know, there are so many that are concerned with employment, with jobs, with uh, these sorts of things, but we don't have a a labor ministry anymore. So I think there's going to be a lot of confusion within government as they try to reorganize to uh, support this new and enlarged cabinet. Um, What about the gender gap? I know a lot of people making a lot of noise about the fact that, you know, less than a fifth of the group are women, just four of 26, if I have the numbers right. I mean, is there a political risk to that or is that just, I mean, does that matter? I think it probably does. Um, I I think that, um, you know, if we think again about the 2023 election, one of the many challenges the UCP faces is that it doesn't poll particularly well with women. It does better with men than it does with women. And, you know, you can imagine a strategy for the UCP to try to win back some of those uh, women who uh, supporters. But with just such an incredibly male face to the cabinet, it really does 
it, it's going to make it difficult even to find, uh, you know, spokespeople for the party uh, in, in senior positions. Um, so it really does stand out as, as being, you know, quite out of line, even with what the Kenny government did and mm-hmm. certainly with what we see in cabinets elsewhere in the country. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you go. And I appreciate your time, as always, chatting with Dr. Lisa Young of uh, University of Calgary. Um, a lot, we, we know that she had to extend an olive branch and she had to bring as we mentioned earlier, some of those Kenny loyalists or the people that were seen as Kenny loyalists, some of the people with the key portfolios into the fold. And she did. The only uh, leadership competitor that didn't get a spot was uh, Leela here. So um, what do you sense the dynamic being? Is that enough? Um, can they work together? Will this put the division aside? Well, I think, you know, she certainly extended a significant olive branch. She didn't just... Um, keep them in cabinet. She kept them in, in portfolios that I think, uh, most of them wanted or, or w- would see as appropriate. I think the tension here is going to be whether the cabinet can hold together, whether the caucus can hold together. Um, there has to be some discomfort with some of the statements that, that she's making. Um, you know, we've, we've seen the premier have to apologize about her, her stance on the Russia Ukraine war. Um, some of her statements about the unvaccinated. How long will these other leadership can, uh, candidates from, from a few months ago be willing to stay in her cabinet if the policies that she's putting forward are consistent with what Smith was talking about in the campaign, or is she going to moderate significantly? I think that's really the critical question here. Yeah, and it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to watch in the coming months. Dr. Young, thank you so much for your time. As always, appreciate it. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, what's going on in our in our workforce, right? And all the upheaval and all the change that we saw during the pandemic and how things are so much different now. And if you think about the things we've talked about, it's been quiet quitting, quiet firing, the great resignation, burnout, lots of people burnt out, people looking for a better work-life balance. It all sounds pretty negative, pretty adversarial, like we all hate our jobs and we all hate our bosses and working just is is no fun. Now, we know that's not true, isn't it? I mean, sure, that's what we do. But I mean, is it really that bad? Let's find out. We're going to have a conversation now with uh, Scott Sheeman, who is a professor of sociology and the Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, when we take a look at this, I mean, that... The tone that we take around our jobs and our bosses, what is, isn't it just sort of what we do? We complain about them. I mean, isn't that just sort of the way it goes? <laughs> we love it. We love to complain. <laughs> I mean, so I, you know, it's funny your your intro there. I mean, I totally agree. I've been, I'm a sociologist. I've been studying trends in the quality of work life for almost two decades now. And I have been baffled with the way that the narrative coming out of the of the pandemic has just really made work sound so awful. And to to be clear, there is a there are problems, sure. um, and I can go into what they are. But I think you're right. I think there's something about we love to complain about our jobs, and I think there's a value to that in the sense that we often bond with 
colleagues or coworkers about yes. bad things, we're not likely to get together and say, oh, I have these opportunities <laughs> for because it sounds almost like boasting, right? It sounds like you're almost bragging if you start talking about you know, I paid, I paid really well. <laughs> you know, you know. So I totally hear you. And that's, I'm interested in sort of the sociology of hating work. I'm fascinated by it because I think it has negative consequences on kind of the overall tone and climate. Work's not going to go away. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the interesting yeah. thing, you did some work around it. And even though we all like to sit around and complain and moan about our jobs and our bosses, when you actually ask people, they actually kind of like what they're doing and they like the people they work for, right? Exactly. And so again, you know, anecdotally, I've, so I do some work in cafes. I, I'm writing a book right now about work and I've sit in cafes and I can't tell you how many conversations I've overheard and it's <laughs> about work and it's complaint. It's usually people getting together and complaining about it. But then when you do, that's not systematic though. And so what I do is I try to do broadly representative systematic studies of the Canadian working population. I also study it in the U.S. as well. And honestly, it's just people don't believe me when I say that the majority of people on questions about satisfaction and questions about turnover intentions, that is thinking about quitting, you name it, down the list, on most questions, the answers are on balance in positive territory. Again, that's not that's not saying there isn't exploitation, there aren't awful bosses, but it's kind of a problem of prevalence versus severity. And by that, I mean, you know, when you have a bad boss, it's awful, it's severe, the yeah. con it can wipe away all the good things. But that's different than saying most bosses are awful. It's when they're awful, they feel really bad. And maybe that's why you know, we like to complain about them. And frankly, the other thing is when people rate their bosses, you know, sometimes if, you know, you think of a scale from one to five with five being amazing and one being awful, a lot of people are like, eh, you know, they're okay. They're not perfect. But then again, think about a marriage. <laughs> you yeah. know, is everybody with a five-star spouse? And, and if it's less than five, are you out? Are you getting a divorce? No. A lot of people are like, you know what? There's some good things and some bad things. And on balance, you know, it could be better, but it's, it is what it is. Interestingly, throughout the pandemic, this is what it's all about. Everybody's talking about how the pandemic has opened their eyes and they realize how, you know, things could be different for them and they want to make changes and they want to. But in reality, again, once you take a look at the data, people actually think things got better during the pandemic, right? Well, that was one thing that really jumped out at me. And again, because I've been, I've been following the narrative and since 2020, I call it the anti-work parade. It's sure. like every time, every time I opened my browser, I was like, Oh God, this sounds awful. <laughs> and I had the data in front of me. So what's really fascinating is I had the data in front of me. I mean, again, data are flawed, but I try to make it as broadly representative and systematic as possible, right? It's better than simply like, Oh, this is my hunch. And, no, and I, I totally agree. It's like the data suggested something different than the narrative. But what's funny is even some of my good friends are like, I don't know anyone who's very satisfied with their job. And I'm like, well, I'm not making it up. And if you look at the data, people don't have a problem telling you, like, I feel underpaid, um, but I'm still satisfied on balance with the job. And that's because work isn't just about money for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Work is about other things, like the quality of the relationships, being able to learn new things, the challenge, 
you know, and they also see possibilities for advancement. So I'd, I'd say the one big thing that really has people upset is I do think the staff shortages uh, really have caused a lot of problems. And that's something that's been ongoing, just not enough people to do the job. And then that makes it feel worse. Oh, for sure. And that is happening right across the workforce. Yeah. What, what about the fact that we, we, we spend so much time griping about our jobs and griping about our bosses to our coworkers? Um, like you said, it can create sort of a, a negative feeling in the workplace, but, but are there other risks? I mean, if, if we're constantly getting together to complain rather than getting together to talk about the things that, you know, really are important and the things that we, we can actually work on, are we overlooking some things that should be our focus rather than just regular shop talk? I mean, that's kind of why I'm writing these pieces, because I feel that's the case. I mean, okay, on the one hand, when you get together, this I don't know if it's ironic or what, but when you get together to gripe about your boss, say, for example, or your job, some quality of it with other coworkers, you're actually bonding, and then that in and of itself is one of the biggest predictors of improved satisfaction. So it's kind of like you're getting together to gripe about the negative <laughs> things, but it has this perverse kind of feedback loop. Um, but no, totally that... I feel like the anti-work narrative comes back to bite people in the rear <laughs> in the sense that um, they a lot of research is coming out now showing that people who jumped on the, the you know, jumped on the bandwagon of the anti-work narrative and quit about 50 percent of them are now coming to regret that move. Right. Because I think there's this element of the grass is always greener. And I agree with you when we when we spend so much time focusing on the negative we don't necessarily see some of the hidden positives or we they get deflated right they get almost kind of overshadowed by the negative rehearsing of grievances and yeah. I, again i think there's a positive bonding to that but i do feel like this anti-work narrative leads us down a garden path it doesn't really end up anywhere productive and again i get i get attacked because it's like oh well are you saying exploitation is okay absolutely not no way but that's not what we're talking about here it's just it's almost like a red herring it kind of takes you down a different uh argument what about employers what about the bosses that, that we're talking about here i mean they know all right i mean there's no boss on the planet that doesn't know that the workers get around and, and gripe about the way they're doing things i mean when you create that adversarial environment it's going to have an impact on the way the boss treats you too right i mean could we be better served by dropping some of that it's a great point i honestly think part of the anti-work narrative comes out of this it's employees versus management and you know as i write in the piece like anger and conflict are click worthy they you know yep. media is partly to blame for this that's why i appreciate you're doing this because it's like there is another side to this where employees expect their managers or supervisors to be empathic right like they expect like oh I'm not always perfect. I'm going to make mistakes or I'm going to need flexibility. Yeah. But it's a two-way street. It's an exchange relationship where, you know, I've been, I've, you know, I've had uh, people working uh, with me or, or, you know, I've supervised people and, you know, you make mistakes sometimes, but all in all, there is this kind of latitude for forgiveness. And so I think, I honestly think that the anti-work narrative is very anti it's very much kind of almost out of a Marxist line of it's the employees versus management. But again, when you ask people questions about their overall sense of management, not even about a particular person, but about management, trust, fairness, 
you know, people being uh, management, being concerned about safety, all of those things on balance are very much in positive territory. Um, so, yeah, it's been baffling to me. That's why I hope the narrative turns, because I don't think it's good for us. It's not beneficial. Yeah. Uh, Scott, great, uh, great work you're doing here. I appreciate you giving us a little insight this morning. Thanks very much. notice the world has changed right and i think there's a few obviously what's going on in ukraine is part of the conversation here um but even before that the united states signaled pretty clearly that they didn't want to be the world policeman anymore right um their position changed and that changed geopolitics and We've talked about Canada's defense before, and I, I think we've sort of taken advantage of the unique position that we're in and thought, well, we don't really have to do anything. We're living next door to the world's only superpower. Um, so we've neglected some things, and maybe it's time to, to, to rethink our position, not only on the money that we spend on defense, but the way we think about it in general. So we're going to have a conversation about just that now, and joining us is Hugh Siegel, um, a Matthews Fellow at the Queen's School of Policy Studies, former Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and a former Associate Cabinet Secretary in Ontario for Federal-Provincial Relations. Mr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with, be with you and to talk to you and your listeners this morning. Now, we, we focus a lot on spending, and, and of course, that's that's a big part of this, and we fall far short of pretty much any target you can name when it comes to defense spending, don't we? Yeah, sadly, um, while we agreed, our government agreed at the First Minister's Conference, NATO First Minister's Conference, several years ago in Wales, that we would spend 2% of our gross domestic product on defense, uh, which is the target for all NATO countries. We're a little bit under 1.4%, which means we are probably about 28th or 29th in the world in terms of what we're spending on defense. And when you look at the size of our landmass, Mass, which is really the second largest mm-hmm. landmass in the world, and you look at where we are in terms of Russia being a neighbor, not 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 less than 12 miles from our northern Arctic borders. The notion that we would be getting away with uh, only maybe uh, at full strength. 60,000 members of the forces were now well beneath that because recruiting has fallen off and a lot of people have not stayed in the forces. They haven't been retained. They've left for a whole bunch of reasons we can discuss. Our ability now to not only discharge the duties our armed forces have under the National Defense Act for aid to the civil power, which you often see in terms of flooding and in terms of forest fires and in terms of hurricane events and even being helpful during the pandemic and meet our obligations to our European NATO allies who are committed to defending us as we are committed to defending them. It's pretty impossible for us to do all that, which forces the armed forces, and I think the men and women in our armed forces are amongst the best trained, the most loyal, the most hardworking, the most determined, the most capable, but it forces their leadership, the chief of defense staff and others, to make decisions about how many people we can actually deploy. And the bottom line is there are not enough people now for us to do the job, and that situation is getting worse and not better, and that's why we need to have, really need to have a national discussion about what kind of priority we're prepared to put on national defense and what kind of resources we're prepared to put behind that priority. 
so many things to get into there. But like you say, I think the overarching is, okay, where do we want to position this as a national priority? Because like I said in the intro, I think we've neglected it. We really and truly have and, and felt we're sort of in a, in a unique position where we can rely on others. We haven't put enough emphasis on it. Do you think we need to start there with a conversation of, okay, we need to reexamine what we do with our defense capabilities in this country overall? The fundamental question, which, which um, your question underlines, is, is really this. We have depended on our American allies, who have been quite generous in their support, both in terms of NORAD, both in terms of um, our forces and their forces training together and doing a whole bunch of constructive things to maximize the impact of our small force. The truth is, and we may see this in the, in the midterm elections coming up in a few days, and who knows what will happen in the next presidential election, America has been, by and large, turning towards Asia as a primary area of focus because of their concerns about China, which means they have been withdrawing some of their interest in the Atlantic area, which, of course, from our perspective, relates to the Russian threat in our Arctic. Um, they have been talking openly about not spending as much as they mm -hmm. have in the past. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we capable of doing on our own, and more so on our own than has been the case in the past with our present capacity? And I think our present capacity is substantially less. I mean, just think about this. We have two coasts. If you count the Arctic, we have three coasts. And essentially, we have about 12 frigates, six per coast, which could be deployed in any kind of defensive anti-submarine or other arrangement. We do have some new Arctic patrol ships to the government's credit, which has come along and have been made available, but they are not combat ships. They are patrol ships, which means that if the Russian Navy, which is heavily ensconced in their northern territories near ours, decided to get involved in an aggressive way, we really wouldn't have the capacity to respond meaningfully. That is simply not good enough for Canada. And I think both in terms of our, our long, long global view of our economic interests, our ability to defend our own territory, our own waters, and moreover to make it, and this is the most important thing, nobody who is in support of more defense spending is in support of war. Right. Quite the contrary. The view is the stronger we are, the stronger we are deemed to be, the stronger our potential enemies see us to be, the less prone they will be to use military and aggressive tactics against us. And right now, I do not think we constitute much of a threat to anyone, nor much of a um, of, a, of, of an effort that would be seen to discourage uh, um, any um, meaningful aggression against us. And the other side of that conversation, Hugh, is it's not just what we can do in terms of defending ourselves. It's, it's, it's what we can do to be a, a going concern. Our, our forces have come out and said, you know what, you're, you're relying on us way too much to deal with uh, domestic issues and catastrophes and things like that. We're there to help, but it really takes us away from our primary goal as a fighting force. So, I mean, the recruitment is an issue, and then what we're asking them to do is an issue. Our focus needs to be realigned. Um, you're, really, you're really hitting a very important point. That is, when we rely 
on the Canadian forces, not, not as the last resort when other first responders are incapable or the nature of the disaster being faced, natural or otherwise, means it's all hands on deck. What we do is we take, we take the forces away from their combat training, we take them away from their foreign postings, we take them away from the skill sets which they need to have in a world which is dynamically different in terms of the technology of war, the technology of intelligence, the technology of artificial intelligence and when we take them away from that we weaken their ability to actually act as their primary fo focus as our national defense force that's what they are established to do under the provisions of the national defense act now anybody who i've ever met in uniform would say hey if the local community needs help because there's a forest fire and they call on us we're there Right. If they call, they're always eager to serve, and they always serve remarkably well. The problem is, A, we don't have enough people in the forces, and B, we really should, as a country that has this kind of broad territory, with all the various risks, we should really have a national first responders corps, which is not about military, but is about the other important support things which need to happen when we get something like um, a terrible hurricane or a terrible hard weather circumstance which really goes beyond the ability of the local capacity to address we should have a national force i think a lot of canadians would sign up they're not necessarily interested in military service yeah, but yeah. they would be interested in that kind of national rescue and support and i think you know it would be an opportunity for skills to be learned and it would be a further reflection of our regard for each other as canadians one um pressure point here that we haven't talked about specifically is china we we, we know that the arctic is an issue when it comes to Russia, but China is not something we can overlook. Uh, that is something that we need to be aware of and we need to be willing to address. And, and frankly, Mr. Siegel, up until now, we've been so completely ineffective and, and downright weak in the face of China. Um, that's something else we should be looking at when we talk about our own defense. More importantly, it's, it's, it's really essential for us to be um, totally brutal with ourselves about what the Chinese are, in fact, up to. Um, they have had their icebreakers in the in the Arctic. They have had um, a strong commitment to being viewed as an Arctic nation, and for them, it's about two things. It's about a transit course through the uh, northern waters that would allow them to ship back and forth to and from China in a more efficient way than the present routes provide. And secondly, it's about access to our natural resources, our minerals, our, our, our Arctic wealth, which of course is important for a country, which to be fair, the Chinese are always looking for new sources of natural resources because they don't have sufficient resources at home to deal with the massive population issues that they have to address. I don't think we have to view the Chinese as intrinsically hostile, but unless we make it perfectly clear that there are rules and there are limits to our tolerance and begin to work with them on that basis, we can expect them, as they have done in election interference and other things in this country, to engage in a way that advances their interests by diminishing ours. And no national government of any political affiliation should be allowed to stand back and say, well, you know, them's the breaks. Right. That's not good enough. We have to engage. We have to invest. We have to be there. And we have to be seen to be there. Um, 
really appreciate your time. We're chatting with Hugh Siegel. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you get out of here. Why does this never rise to the... Why, there's no, As you say, no political party ever raises this issue. It's never become a campaign issue. We've had three elections in the last few years, and this has never been something that any of the parties have talked about. How do we raise this up to the level of a national discussion? I think your first question um, about, you know, where are we with respect to the Americans? Where are the Americans with respect to their international defense commitments really answers your question. I think the vast majority of Canadians concluded, as you did when you put your first question, the Americans are our allies. They are our closest neighbor. No one's going to dare attack us. We don't have any threat they won't help us with. Therefore, we better spend our money on MRIs. We better spend our money on more hospital capacity. We better spend our money on more social programs. All of that is good, but we're being unrealistic about depending in perpetuity upon the Americans. That's where we have to have the frank discussion. And we have to ask ourselves, this in terms of a scenario, what if America chooses to withdraw from the level of commitment and engagement and forced deployment and investment that they have made? Who do we turn to to defend ourselves then? The answer is it has to be ourselves, right. and therefore we have to make those investments. Yeah, we have to have some self-reliance. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.